Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've given to us. We also think of those in our church family who are grieving the loss of loved ones recently, as well as not, not so recently, but we grieve along with them because we know in your word you say that when one of us is joyful, we rejoice with them. When one is hurting, we hurt right along with them. That is the beauty of the body of Christ. We thank you for all the many truths and instruction and everything you've laid out so clearly for us in your word that we really have to be willfully ignorant to not know what you want from us, what you expect from us, what we can and should do to please you. We thank you uh, that you have made your way to salvation abundantly clear, the way to heaven abundantly clear, and it is only through Jesus. We thank you for that way. We thank you for providing that way, and we, provide, we thank you for providing uh, the, the way for us to see it in your word. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time together, that your word would go forth, that our hearts would be changed, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. In 1859, a man from Switzerland named Henry Dunant uh, traveled to Solferino, Italy on a chance business trip. While there, he witnessed the horrors of the aftermath of war, as Solferino had been the location of an especially deadly battle in the Second Italian War for Independence at the time. Dunant was horrified at the sheer number of dead bodies just left on the battlefield with no one to give them a dignified burial. After returning home, he published a book detailing what he saw, which became very popular and opened the eyes of the general population of the world. Dunant also had an idea, which because of his book gained popularity, of a neutral world organization that would help treat wounded soldiers no matter who was fighting a war, no matter whose side they were on. Dunant's organization became a reality and eventually became known as the Red Cross. Both the Red Cross and Dunant's ideas also led to the Geneva Conventions, which established humanitarian rules for war in the world. The woman who would become known as Harriet Tubman, born in 1822 as an enslaved person in the United States, was able to escape and make her way up to the northern states, but she didn't stay there, enjoying her new freedom. Instead, Tubman went down bravely, back down south, on 13 different missions to, to rescue about 70 other people from slavery by bringing them to the northern states and to Canada. Using the Underground Railroad, Tubman was nicknamed Moses for her heroic efforts to not only save people herself, but also create songs with the directions to stops on the Underground Railroad hidden within the songs, clues to where to go next hidden in the songs. Those songs could then be passed on to others and help them. Neither Tubman nor any of the people she helped rescue were ever captured. 
There are numerous other stories of altruism and, and human kindness that changed human history and the entire world. There are numerous other stories of altruism that changed one or a few people's lives forever. And as impressive as all of these acts of altruism are, would you be surprised to know that in and of themselves, none of them is enough to earn an eternity in heaven with God? None of them. There are a lot of people in the world today who truly believe that doing enough good works is enough to please God enough to get into heaven when they die. Some wealthy people give millions and even billions of dollars away to charity, hoping that it's enough to buy their way into heaven. None of this way of thinking is new. In fact, it's the way humanity has thought and functioned ever since the first two humans sinned. Today we'll be looking at a human scenario where this belief is once again put forth as one of the ways people can get to heaven. But we're also going to see how Jesus himself responds to this. And we're going to see if there still is a place for good works in the life of the believer in Jesus today. Last week, we left Jesus and his disciples having miraculously arrived on the shore at a location called Gennesaret over here. This is immediately after his disciples were in a boat and caught in an extremely strong and dangerous storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, right here, that threatened their lives in, in, in every way. Where was Jesus at that point? Not with them, but on the hillside overlooking the lake, watching this unfold and interceding for them to his father. When the disciples were completely exhausted from rowing in futility for several hours and all hope seemed lost, it was at that point that Jesus came out onto the lake, walking upon the waves and declaring to them to have no fear, for he was God and could put an end to that storm, which he then did. In mercy for the disciples no longer being able to row, Jesus had them immediately end up on shore. Before that experience, what happened? Jesus had miraculously fed upwards of 20,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. At that point, that gigantic crowd understood Jesus to be the prophet that Moses had prophesied about 1,500 years before before that, this prophet that would come who would know God face to face just as Moses had. The crowd also put two and two together and realized that Jesus was also the messianic king who would reestablish the Jewish kingdom and usher in a time of unprecedented peace and abundance who was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament prophets. Not wanting to waste any time, the crowd starts to stir and rumble with these feelings of forcibly wanting to make Jesus that king and drive out the oppressive Romans right then and there. 
Seeing the beginnings of this, Jesus wanted to ensure his own disciples didn't get swept up in this fever, and so sent them away by boat to neighboring Bethsaida with the intention of them making their way across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Here's Bethsaida. Uh, the, the intention was to go across the northern tip to neighboring Capernaum. After sending the disciples away, Jesus dispersed that huge crowd and told them all to go home. No doubt some of them did, but from what we gather in our passage this morning, some of them also didn't. They may have sought shelter at some of the neighboring village inns or stayed with family that evening. A lot of these people who ended up staying in the area had watched Jesus send his disciples away in the one boat they had arrived in without getting in with them. They may have even watched him go back up the hillside after telling everyone to go home. So in their minds, where was Jesus still? In that area, right? He hadn't gone anywhere. Somewhere around there. And that's where we pick back up in our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 22. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 6 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 6, verse 22, we read, The next day, so this is the next morning, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat but that his disciples had gone away alone. At some point that morning, uh, some boats arrived from a city called Tiberias on the other side of the lake, right over here uh, on the uh, southwestern side of the lake. And this is what we find out from that. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So there's some boats that end up where they are, near Bethsaida, the, the remnants of the crowd, that came from this city named Tiberias. As an aside, according to one biblical scholar, what we just read, and generally referring to the whole lake as Tiberias in John chapter 6, verse 1, this is the only reference in the entire New Testament to this city. Tiberius, that boats had just arrived from there to the area around Bethsaida. But we know from other historical sources a little bit about this city. Interestingly enough, after Herod the Great of Christmas fame died, and his one son, Herod Antipas, started ruling over that area of Galilee, which included Jesus' hometown of Nazareth here, Antipas built a city named after the Roman emperor Tiberius who began ruling the Roman Empire after his stepfather, Caesar Augustus, we've all heard of that guy too, died. Tiberius was the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension as he ruled from 14 AD to 37 AD. Here's the interesting part about the city that was named after him by Herod Antipas. Antipas purposely built this city over an existing graveyard, a move that was extremely offensive to the Jewish population in Galilee. In fact, it was so offensive to the Galilean Jewish population that in general, none of them wanted to step foot in it. 
Tiberius was off limits. Antipas knew full well what he was doing. And so he was able to give out favors to political allies in that city and give them a place of refuge without having to deal uh, with opposition from powerful Jewish leaders. What a sneaky guy, huh? And the only New Testament reference we have to this city is right here in our, in our passage this morning, what we just read in verse 23. Getting back to verse 23, even though most of the crowd had dispersed, there was still a lingering number of people who had been a part of the miracle of the feeding of not just the 5,000, but in reality, 20,000. They couldn't find Jesus, and it didn't look like his disciples had returned, but they were not going to give up that easily. They were not going to give up on being where Jesus was. And so, verse 23, again, there, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Even though the Jewish population in general didn't want to step foot in the city of Tiberias, they didn't have as big of a problem hiring the boats from there to take them back across the lake. Now, how did they know where to go to look for Jesus? A couple weeks back, I mentioned that the full year between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, in between Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, and the miracle of the feeding of the tens of thousands of people, Jesus spent the majority of his ministry in Galilee and used Capernaum as his home base for that entire year leading up to this. And so that was the first place then that they just assumed they thought of to go looking for him. And they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Remember though, was Jesus technically in Capernaum at this point? after having gotten in the disciples' boat and having walked on the water. Now, where did they end up? Starts with a G. Gennesaret, right? That's where they ended up. They ended up in neighboring Gennesaret. Close, but not quite there. But here's the thing. That same year between John 5 and 6, which I just referenced, if you remember, can be categorized as the year of popularity for Jesus and his ministry. Everyone had heard about Jesus. Word spread like wildfire about all the miraculous healings Jesus was doing and all the mind-blowing teaching on the kingdom of heaven he was giving. And crowds were swelling just to get anywhere close to him. That's why there was even a crowd 20,000 strong uh, that Jesus wanted to feed in the first place. So even though Jesus and his disciples technically landed in neighboring Gennesaret, as soon as even one person there saw Jesus and recognized him, word would have immediately spread throughout the entire region, pretty soon making its way to Capernaum and the ears of those from the crowd of 20,000 who were still looking for him. That was the height of Jesus' time of popularity. But if you remember, the miracle of the feeding of 20,000 in John 6 is the turning point 
in Jesus' ministry. He had just come out of the year of his largest popularity. He was about to enter the year of his largest opposition from those who misunderstood and resented him for what he wasn't doing as they thought he should be doing as the Messianic king. And here is where we begin to see that misunderstanding being vocalized. Those from that crowd that had been miraculously fed make their way down from where they landed in Capernaum down to Gennesaret and ask Jesus when and how, how in the world, when in the world did he get there? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? As noted by one biblical scholar, all these people could do, even after Remember what had just happened after they had just witnessed the miracle of the gigantic crowd being fed with just five loaves of bread and two fish. All they could do was think about things still in a human, natural way. They saw the disciples leave and take the only boat they had arrived in. It was impossible for a man to walk around the shoreline of the lake in that short amount of time. And so these people wonder, Jesus, how on earth did you get here so quickly? Even after what they had just experienced, they still couldn't conceive of anything other than what they could understand as plausible as anything that could have happened. And so once again, they're baffled. They have no answer for this. Notice, as one biblical scholar points out, that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. He knows that he literally walked across half of the lake and then miraculously had the boat, when he get, got in it, arrive at Gennesaret immediately after that, but he didn't think it was necessary to tell them that. Instead, knowing what was in their hearts, he point-blank calls them out for their real heart's motivation. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. You haven't done all of this stuff to come find me. Not because you saw signs even, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. <laughs> See, Jesus points out to these people, you didn't even spend all of this time looking for me because you wanted to witness more miracles. It wasn't even because of that. You spent all this time looking for me because you wanted some more of that food I gave you. It's like the epitome of base human and selfish desire, isn't it? They didn't even chase after him all this time just to witness more miracles. They just wanted some more food from him. As Jesus points out, all these people cared about wasn't even the unexplainable spiritual power that Jesus exuded. They were just hungry, and they saw him as McDonald's. In a way, this is how a lot of people in the world view God. They see him as the great free vending machine in the sky, and that he exists to meet not just their needs, but every want and desire they have. If God slips up even just once, in their minds anyway, that's enough to doubt his very existence. Or if they believe in God, 
but he chooses not to intervene in a time of crisis, it's reason enough to get unreasonably angry with him. Or God is just sort of an afterthought, and one only really talks to him at all if they're in a lot of trouble. This mindset and belief is the complete opposite of who God really is. God does not exist to serve us. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. But the people who went looking for Jesus from the area of Bethsaida only viewed him as a magician who could and would feed them whenever they wanted. And so Jesus hits them right at the center of that mindset and belief. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. In other words, Jesus says to them, don't focus, on, don't focus what you spend your time doing and what the purpose of your life is on what you can get from this world in order to only fulfill your human and fleshly desires. Instead, spend your time doing and focus the purpose of your life on what will last for eternity. The first part of what Jesus referenced is what the people had been focused on and what is the mindset of those who only view God as what he can do for them. Their entire view of God is a worldly one, only wanting to try to get God to give them what they want from and in this world. It's only based on the world what can come from the world, and limited only to the world. But the life spent on doing what will lead to eternal life, as Jesus says in verse 27, is what one should focus their life's purpose on. Now, most Jewish teachers of this time, as well as a lot of teachers of numerous different religions, will teach the same exact thing. Be virtuous. Lead a life of goodness. Do good things for other people. But again, who is the focus uh, on in all of these other faiths and religions? Who is the focus on? Yourself. Live a good life for the purpose of earning yourself a good eternity or state of nirvana or at the very least not wake up as a dung beetle in the next life. But in verse 27, what radically different teaching does Jesus introduce to the people he's talking to? He specifies the focus of a life that will end in eternal life on who? Himself. In fact, he specifies that he's the one who will be the one to grant this eternal life since God the Father has set his seal on him to do that as his representative. And in connection with, with what else Jesus has said, Jesus as God himself. The people are indeed curious, even if they still don't get it yet. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? See, these people are still thinking and still operating within that framework 
of following the Jewish law, or more generally, doing works to earn God's favor and therefore eternal life. Their mindset is the same as anyone from any other faith or religion that has ever existed since the beginning of humankind, save one. And that mindset is what a lot of people who claim they believe in God believe as well. That if they simply believe in God and do good works, that's enough to earn entrance into heaven. But all of that, even the mindset of the one who claims faith in the God of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, is flat out rejected and denounced by Jesus himself next. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, your focus is on doing works for God in order to better yourself and earn something for yourself. The only so-called work that God is interested in and bases your entire eternal destination on, however, is faith in the one he has sent. This isn't just a belief in or a belief in the existence of Jesus as the Messiah and Deliverer that God the Father sent into the world. This is also a belief in everything he claimed about himself, that he is God, that he would be the sacrifice to pay for the sin of the world, that he was that sacrifice uh, in payment for sin, that he did rise again from the dead, that he did all of it as a substitute for anyone and everyone who would take him as their substitute, and that repentance of that sin is the basis for forgiveness of that sin, leading to that forgiveness and reconciliation with God to be made one of his children. Taken along with everything else Jesus said, that is what is all wrapped up in that phrase, believe in him whom God has sent. One must completely get rid of a foundational belief that God exists to serve them. Get rid of that and start with the foundation that we exist to serve God. Since that's the truth, it's God's way. And God's way only for us to be reconciled to him from the chasm our sin creates in between us and him as most holy God. Instead of shaking our fist at heaven for everything wrong we think God has done, or that there is only one way to be restored to him and gain eternal life with him, we must be thankful that as we exist to serve him, he even created a way to have that. So if good works are not the basis for becoming a child of God, gaining entrance to heaven, or even pleasing God without that repentance and belief in all of who Jesus is and did for us, what is the place of good works in the life of those who have repented of their former life, been forgiven, and now live in that faith? What is their place? Are believers now free to just do whatever we want? Do we not have to worry about doing good works now? 
Once someone puts their faith in who Jesus is and what he did for them, it's very tempting to operate under the mindset of, I've escaped hell, I'm good. I can do whatever I want now, and God will just forgive me. I don't need to live for him. I don't need to be in his house regularly to grow more. I don't need to read or know what's in his word. I don't need to agree with everything in his word. I can interpret moral standards in his word laid down since the creation of humanity according to what seems right in modern times. I can have a system of morality that is similar to the world's no matter how much it breaks God's standards. And I don't need to focus on living my life the way I know God wants me to, nor do the things I know he wants me to. Does it now not matter what we do or say once we've placed our hope of eternity in Jesus' hands? Absolutely not. The book of James gives the most direct instruction on this. As Jesus says in our passage this morning, faith in him is the foundation but we then build on that foundation with how we live the rest of our lives. James says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Is somebody actually saved if they're not showing that? Suppose you, ha you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. You can't just say you have faith, and then you're not showing it in any way. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. In other words, our foundation isn't our good works themselves, but our foundation of faith in Jesus is proven by how we live that out. Not only is living a life for Jesus proven by our words and actions, but in addition, just as the body is dead without breath, so also, is, so also faith is dead without good works. How can one claim living faith in Jesus if what they're spending their time on, what they're promoting with their life, and how they want others to see them is not really doing any of that at all? How can one claim eternal life if their physical life portrays self-centeredness and worldliness, which is really dead? That's the place right here. That's the place of good works in a person's life. Not the presence of which one thinks will save them, but the presence of which will prove a faith founded on Jesus his death and resurrection and repentance. Here's why. As humans, we can only be empowered to live the life Jesus wants us to live through the movement and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who immediately comes to indwell us when we give our lives to Jesus. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit's work within us and the transformation of our lives is the actual seal on us, proving to us that we have been made right with God and can look forward to an eternity with him. The God-glorifying words and actions we do with our lives are then manifestations of the Holy Spirit's work within us. It all goes together. So a life that is still just being purely self-centered and worldly, one has to ask, well, do they even have the Holy Spirit in them? And if not, are they even saved to begin with? How... So what are, what are you proving with your life? What are you showing with your life? How good you can be or how much the Holy Spirit is working through you? If you think your good works in and of themselves will save you and earn you entrance into heaven, I hope you've seen straight from Jesus himself that that is not anywhere near enough. You have to get rid of that lie get rid of that belief, and instead found your eternity on faith in what Jesus has done for you as a substitute for your sin and repent of that sin, looking to live your life out, life out for him, out of love for him. If you have repented and you have taken Jesus as your Savior and King over the rest of your life, how much of that life have you surrendered to him? How much are you still living for yourself? And how much are you living through the Holy Spirit using you? What is being proven by the way you spend your time, what you focus on, what you think about, what you say, and what you're doing for others? May we seek to live the most God-glorifying and not me-glorifying lives through surrender to the Holy Spirit's power and guidance as possible. May we not do good works to glorify ourselves or earn favor with God for ourselves or even base our eternal destination on such. But may we live these words also from Jesus himself out with the rest of our lives. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that, not for yourself, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these hard-hitting words from Jesus and the Apostle James, but also ones that give us a lot of clarity on, on this issue and on this subject. I pray that if there's anybody here who's lived their entire life just thinking that their good works are enough to get them into heaven, I pray that they've seen straight from Jesus himself that that's not enough. Uh, they have to see their need to repent of their sin and take Jesus as the substitute Savior from that sin, and then live for them, live for him with the rest of their lives as king. And Lord, if we've done that, if we've made that decision, but a lot of what we're doing and saying and believing and thinking is just as how the world is. 
I pray that we would surrender those areas to the Holy Spirit's transformation and therefore the Holy Spirit's working in us, uh, that, that the world may see our good deeds as light, and because it's the Holy Spirit working within us, glorify God. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.